Okay. We here at NPR have an app we really like. We want you to try it, too. It is called NPR One. You can use it to listen to NPR news, shows, and podcasts. And as you do, it listens to you, and it figures out what you like the best, and it gives you more of that. We think you will like it. Find NPR One on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with our roundup of the week's political news. We've got to cover the latest Trump drama. We will also look at some big states coming up in the primary race, and we'll do some listener mail. And end the show with Can't Let It Go, when we share something we were just a little obsessed with this week, politics or otherwise. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm Asma Khalid. <laughs> uh, I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. Hey, hey. So, got to point out, we are all in different places today. Uh, I'm at NPR's New York bureau because the Democrats have had rallies in New York all this week. Sue, you're at the mothership in D.C. Asma and Don, where are you guys? We're in the great state of Wisconsin. And should we say we're both back home in the great Midwest. Exactly. Um, The best coast. I'm from Michigan. (laughs) I'm from Indiana. (laughs) So where in Wisconsin are, are you guys? Right now, downtown Milwaukee, which does look a lot like uh, with the with the river and the canals going through. It looks like a little Chicago. All right. Um, happy April Fool's Day. If you're hearing this on Friday, be careful on the interwebs uh, because, you know, April Fool's. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, all right. Let's talk about Wisconsin. The primary there is on Tuesday. It's an important state on both sides of the race. How does this look for the Democrats, you guys? So I went to a Hillary Clinton event earlier in the week in Madison, which is uh, really sort of friendly Bernie Sanders terrain. Um, I mean, I think this is a state in which Hillary Clinton is fighting uh, tough. It's a state that borders Michigan. She lost the state of Michigan. And there's sort of similar sentiments here. I've interviewed a number of people who uh, really like Bernie Sanders. So I think at some point she would certainly have liked to have locked up the, the race, I think, at this point. And it seems that she is going to have a fight on her hands here in, in Wisconsin and maybe even some other uh, Midwestern states that we have ahead. She would have liked to have locked up the race by <laughs> three a months A long ago, time ago. <laughs> I guess. Um, and, and here's what happens. Uh, it's another big state. It's a big state that Democrats love come presidential uh, general election years. And should Bernie Sanders carry it? It adds to that narrative that he's the upstart who keeps winning, uh, even as his road continues to be, you know, very difficult, needing 57 percent of all delegates going forward to get the nomination. And that's the tough part for Bernie, because winning Wisconsin isn't good enough, right? Like he needs a blowout in Wisconsin. And he needs a blowout. Yeah. And that barely moves the numbers on what he needs to do going forward. That's that's, as we say, the math. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, though, about how Hillary Clinton is campaigning, she was here earlier in the week uh, in Madison, and she gave a sort of general election-style speech. She barely, I don't even know that she mentioned Bernie Sanders by name once. She'll say my opponent. uh And she talked about Donald Trump and the Republicans at length. And basically, she was warning voters about the dangers of having a Republican uh, in the office come November because the, the Supreme Court she was highlighting is really crucial and we need to pay attention as to who is a winnable Democratic candidate and who will nominate justices who are in line with progressive attitudes. Uh, It was an entirely general election-style speech given by, you know, a woman who has yet to actually secure the nomination of her own party. So why is Wisconsin looking good for Sanders? It's a demographic thing, right? 
Um, so, well, yeah, because Wisconsin, it's a largely white state. It has a really high share of uh, white men to black voters that have liked Bernie in this race. I mean, he should do very, very well here. What he needs to win to stay sort of on par, at least have a chance at competing with Clinton going forward in the pledge delegates, he needs a 65 percent margin of victory there. That's a pretty huge margin. Uh, it doesn't it seems attainable, but it would be a really big. And if he hits 65 or over, it would be a really, really good night for Bernie. If he falls below that, it doesn't still change the trajectory of Hillary Clinton's favorability to win the nomination ultimately. And in terms of why this state would look good for a Bernie Sanders, this is a place that's lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, I covered the auto industry for many years for NPR when I was based in Detroit. And there used to be a Chrysler plant in Kenosha that isn't here anymore. General Motors had a big truck plant in Janesville that is gone. And that message about how these big trade deals, NAFTA, TPP, have hurt American workers really resonate. And that is the core of Bernie Sanders' message. And one of the things that I didn't really know, truthfully, until we had walked in here, that one of the producers uh, here at the Milwaukee station was telling us is that socialism isn't really foreign, at least in Milwaukee that the city itself had uh, a socialist mayor who served multiple terms. I mean, I think that that's something that maybe we saw a bit of in Minnesota, that in some of these states, socialism and the progressive style politics, you could argue that Bernie Sanders represented even before he was running for the Democratic nomination, are just not unfamiliar themes. Yeah. Let's talk about the GOP in, in Wisconsin. Um, it seems Trump might not do that well there. Uh, it's trending the wrong way for Trump. He's been pulling about 30% in the very highly respected uh, University of Marquette Law School poll that is published in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. But in the last, since the last poll, Ted Cruz has gone from roughly 20% up to almost 40%. That's amazing so he to is, think about it, right? He has almost doubled. Now, some of that has come as the field has been winnowed down. So it's, you know, it's, it, it's Cruz at 40, Trump at 30. Kasich at, at roughly 20. Can I say the, the two things to me that I think are interesting about Wisconsin is um, it's another state where I think we see the uh, never Trump forces really dialing in their efforts. Come, mm -hmm. I, I think it probably started in Utah and it's continuing forward in Wisconsin. Uh, and if Trump does poorly there, I think it's going to invigorate that side of the party that thinks that they can block him from getting the nominee. And if Trump does really poorly in Wisconsin, I think it, he, he needs at least 25 delegates coming out of the state to stay on track, you know, with projections to win the nomination outright. If he falls below that, if he comes out of Wisconsin really bad, I think that the conversation about a contested convention only gets fired up. I mean, it seemed like only last week the conversation seemed to be, oh, Trump's in a good position to lock this up before the convention. A really poor showing in Wisconsin might rattle that and have us talking more about uh, contesting convention. I thought it was very telling this week that the Trump campaign hired um, a lawyer to be their convention delegate tracker to sort of figure out work that process. He's setting up an office in Washington uh, with the specific intention of figuring out the convention rules and the process there. Uh, John Kasich hired uh, two people to run his delegate strategy. So it just seems like the movement this week seems to be more around coalescing around the idea that this is not going to be settled going into Cleveland. And conservative talk radio is very important in Milwaukee and across Wisconsin, and they have been on board with the hashtag uh, never 
Trump, and and you so you can you can feel it. And and the other thing, if 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 he does have a really awful day, as as Sue describes, then you know everything's going well until it's not going well, <laughs> and then once it's not going well, the whole narrative can change. Now it's still a really steep climb, and everything has to go right for Ted Cruz between question, now and the end. My question, though, on that front, Don, is that if things don't go well, we've seen this before, where Donald Trump has had like a misstep hasn't done as well say as people had expected after Iowa it kind of he kind of barrels down and if we look at some of the states that will be voting down the road I mean these are states that are regions of the country where Donald Trump has performed well I mean we're still waiting on New York Connecticut New Jersey I mean Trump has pretty much swept the Northeast if you want to say I mean so far he did I mean extremely well in a state like Massachusetts and New Hampshire Um, and I I feel like I'm sort of hard-pressed to see a dramatic shift in the dynamics where Cruz would suddenly start doing well geographically in places where Trump has dominated. So there were two big stories this week that seemed to be all about Trump and women. The first one was about Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Sue, can you fill us in? Right. So um, I think most podcast listeners would probably recall that there was an incident in a Trump campaign event a while back where uh, Corey Lewandowski, his campaign manager, was accused of grabbing uh, and almost pushing to the ground a Breitbart reporter named Michelle Fields. And the incident got a lot of attention at the time, but there was no clear uh, video or photographs at the time. And the reporter uh, filed charges with the local police department in Florida. She's also since quit her job at Breitbart. Um, and she pressed charges against Lewandowski. The Florida police department uh, this week charged Corey Lewandowski with simple battery. Donald Trump has stood by his campaign manager. He says he believes he will be cleared of the charges, and he defended him this way. Uh, And those tapes, to me, are very conclusive. A lot of people are uh, looking and saying, how can anybody be charged? She was actually, if you look at her, my book, and according to a lot of people, she's grabbing at me. And he's acting as an intermediary and trying to block her from doing that. The news conference was over. It was done. It was finished. And she was running up and grabbing and asking questions. Uh, what this did was uh, reinvigorate a storyline that Trump and his campaign do not respect women. Uh, a, a large group of conservative female writers uh, put out a letter calling on Trump to fire Lewandowski. And he has said he stands by him, that Corey is a good guy. They have also uh, disputed her account, even though they released fresh video of the incident from the hotel cameras that very clearly shows uh, Lewandowski uh, touching Michelle Fields. And then but then it's like Trump pushed back and said that he didn't know what was in that woman's hand and that he maybe didn't feel safe. Right. As as Osman said earlier, he, he kind of doubled down. He you know, with Trump, when he gets attacked, he doesn't necessarily retreat. And he his point was uh, Corey was defending him. She could have been a threat. He suggested she had something in her hand, which appeared to be a pen. But, you know, he, he made comments saying that, you know, Corey didn't know that at the time. How maybe. dare that journalist have a pen in her hand? Right. Although and it should be said that, like, on no presidential campaign does staff provide security. That is what Secret Service protection is there for. There was a Secret Service agent standing behind Trump. It is very unusual for staff to in any way uh, play the role of security, particularly towards the press. So, I mean, the question is, does this hurt Trump? We've known for a while that his numbers with women are already pretty low, right? Yes. I mean, mean, this is the thing. Like, Donald Trump has not been doing well with women 
you know, before Corey, the Corey Lewandowski uh, incident happened, before his comments this week that we'll talk about, I mean, his numbers are incredibly bad with women. So, and so, so we're talking about general election head-to-heads, right? Because in the primary races so far, in states that Trump has won, he often wins the plurality of women voters in those states. Oh, right. Totally. I, I was just referring to when you look at uh, general election polls and what uh, the broader electorate looks like, his numbers with women are terrible. Uh, in the latest Wall Street Journal NBC poll, when you dig down into the subsets of numbers, um, Trump has an unfavorable favorable of he only has a 16 percent favorable view and a 73 percent unfavorable view of all women 18 to 49. The question is, is there anything Trump can do to improve his numbers with women? Well, I'll tell you what, what probably won't improve it. Um, Some comments he made this week about abortion in a town hall with Chris Matthews on MSNBC. We have some tape of that. Do you believe believe in punishment for abortion? Yes or no? Is it principle? uh, The answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. Ten cents, ten years? I don't know. That I don't know. That well, why I don't not? Know. I don't you know. You take positions and everything else. I frankly, I do take positions and everything else. It's a very complicated position. So this got him some pushback, not just with people that defend the right to abortion, <laughs> from, but also from the pro-life community. From everyone. Yeah, because they their whole argument is that they don't want to blame the woman. They don't want to punish the woman. They think it's about the people that provide those abortions for women. I have never seen a presidential candidate able to equally offend abortion rights opponents <laughs> and abortion rights supporters in the exact same statement. That Donald's it, full of surprises. But it, it is truly a remarkable feat in politics to be able to do that. And you are you are right that what he said is does not capture the position of either side of this very, very long contested social argument. And it is safe to say that what he said was uh, quickly disavowed. Uh, by all sides of the issue and his campaign for one of the few times really did try and I don't know if I want to say walk back, but clarify um, what he meant to say. And he said he didn't mean that they should punish the women, that they should punish the doctors that would provide abortions in a scenario where those abortions were illegal. Now, Clinton has already sent out a few fundraising emails talking about Trump's comments, trying to galvanize support, get some donations. Does this solidify women behind her candidacy more? Does it help her with women? Yes. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just this is like this is like politics 101. I mean, the stuff that Trump is saying and what he's doing. I mean, this is when you see, uh, you know, the people that are nervous about Trump at the top of the ticket. This is the stuff they point to that says you can't win a general election and talk about uh, gender and issues in this way. I mean, this is not there's it's very hard for me to hear any situation in which those kind of comments can be spun into an asset in a general election fight. And we don't know if he dials it back or brings it back or tries to come back to the center in a general election if he is the nominee, but all of this is out there. And we are we are watching the first draft of this fall's campaign. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk more about the Democrats and do some listener mail. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital. Combining free online financial tools that provide unprecedented transparency with personal attention from dedicated financial advisors. The result is a complete transformation in the way you understand, manage, and grow your net worth. On the web at personalcapital.com politics. All right, let's do this. Sam Sanders here in Midtown Manhattan waiting for a Hillary Clinton campaign event featuring Bill Clinton to start. 
before we get back to the show, here's a podcast recommendation. NPR's newest podcast is called Embedded. Each episode, Embedded takes you to a new place, out in the world, searching for the people behind a headline. This week, hear what addiction looks like up close in a drug house in rural Indiana, ground zero for a surprising crisis, at least here in America in 2016. It's an HIV outbreak. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcast and on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. Okay, we're back. I'm in New York City. Both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders held rallies in the state this week. And both Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton have really been trying to point to Clinton's accomplishments as a senator from New York and say that she is the best for the middle class and for the working class of this state. And they're both doing this thing, kind of saying to to like New Yorkers, y'all know her. She's been around. She's your friend. She's here. I mean, the question is, will that work? You know, Bernie Sanders, he's making a really big push to do well in the state. He opened up a New York state headquarters in Brooklyn, just down the road from where Hillary's campaign headquarters are. Um, He's having a big rally in a massive park in the Bronx Thursday night with Rosario Dawson. Um, From what I hear, he's taping a commercial with Spike Lee tomorrow. Like, this is a battle royale. What do we think about either person's chances? I mean, it would be fairly shocking if Clinton couldn't win New York, wouldn't it? I mean, that seems like, is it more just that Bernie's trying to up his margins or does he really have a chance to win statewide? You know, I don't know if I can answer that question. I know that the the, the last poll I saw, she was up by about 10 points. But in other polls earlier, she was up by like 20 or more. So the margin is closing. The question is, can can Sanders close it by the 19th? And the thing about New York is that it's a really, really, really diverse state. It is not Wisconsin. It is not Washington state. Like it has an electorate full of people that Clinton does well with when you talk about blacks and Latinos that are over the age of 30. And if they come out and vote, and I talked to folks at that union this morning who said that they're going to organize and organize to get those folks out to vote for her. If they do that, then it seems that she wins. I mean, she also has relationships, I presume, as does her husband. I mean, they... I mean, she won a statewide office in in New York. You have to organize and you have to have relationships on the ground in order to do that. Um, and, and so to some degree, I think she has a home court advantage in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like yesterday when she was at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, you know, she had New York Senator Chuck Schumer introduce her. She had Charlie Rangel on stage for her dancing to the music on stage. Like she has a deep bench and a deep squad and a deep team in this state. And that should stand for something. Yeah. And it should and it also should be I mean, Sanders has had a lot of momentum going into New York. But if Clinton wins big there, I mean, New York is a hugely richly delegate state. I mean, it has more delegates than the last like four states combined. It's got it has more delegates in Washington, Wisconsin, Idaho and Utah. So a big win for Clinton there would sort of eradicate the gains that Bernie has seen in the race up till now. Uh, And I think that it's it's hard to imagine that Clinton's going to lose New York. If she does lose New York, that would say a lot about uh, how much momentum Sanders has in this race. You know, but what's interesting is that even if she wins New York, it doesn't seem like there's any chance that Sanders is going to drop out after that. He has issues he wants to talk about. He's not going anywhere as long as he has the money to keep going, which he will, and and people will keep turning out to see him, which they will. Probably also worth recalling that in 2008, candidate Hillary Clinton, uh, long after the outcome was known of the primaries, finally dropped out after the last contest. Yeah. And just to point out, um, this is my first trip following Hillary Clinton for a bit. Her stump speech is 20 minutes or so. 
Bernie Sanders stump speech is usually an hour. <laughs> like, they're just night and day. And, you know, talking with Tamara Keith, who's, who's been on Hillary for a while and seeing what I'm seeing now, the emotion and energy at these events seems different. I mean, her Apollo event seemed to be almost more lively than she's had before. But still, compared to Bernie Sanders' events, it felt like a dinner party, where Bernie Sanders' events felt like a house party. <laughs> like, they're just different. And I and I, I suppose it speaks to the different styles of them both writ large. When you talk to Bernie supporters, do any of them ever suggest that they'd like to see him on the ticket? I mean, would that be like, is that something that that, there, that conversation is going on among his supporters, not his campaign? Um, when I talk to folks at Bernie Sanders events, they don't really engage on the idea of Bernie Sanders not being the nominee. Not being the nominee. They're not yeah. trying to have that conversation. <laughs> They're like, maybe she'll run yet. on the Bernie ticket. There you go. Yeah. Okay, let's do some listener mail. We've got a question this week from a listener in the UK named Richard. Hi, Richard. He wrote, I'm not sure if this is from my position as a Brit, but it seems strange to me to hear you all speak of the black vote as if black Americans are a homogeneous group. Or when you talk about Latino Americans, etc., is it the case that their voting habits are so similar that you can class them almost as a homogeneous group? So I want to take a crack at this question. It's a very thoughtful one. Thank you for it. Um, I've done a few stories now, actually, talking about some cleavages in the black vote. Um, one with young black voters in South Carolina and how they could vote differently than their older black counterparts, and another about some exit polling that suggests that even though Hillary Clinton wins the black and brown primary vote overall, uh, with black voters under 30 and Latino voters under 30, Bernie Sanders actually wins that demo. So we've had some stories about it, probably haven't talked about it as much in the podcast as we should have, but yeah, I mean, for sure, I think that all of us here on the team agree that no one racial group is a monolith. And a lot of voters that I've talked to, black voters, say a lot of their vote is influenced by a need to defend Barack Obama, the first black president. And that kind of clouds some of the divisions that we're seeing turn up in this primary. Anyway, Richard, thank you. I'm going to email the follow-up with you and send you some links, and we'll talk some more. Thank you. All right. Um, Erica wrote us from Nebraska, and Nebraska is an important detail here. She said, I'm a Bernie supporter, and while I'm not a huge fan of Hillary, I will vote for her if it came down to Trump versus Hillary. My husband says our state is so strongly Republican that my vote would be just as damaging to Trump if it went to either a Democrat or another third, she, in quotes, cough, cough, libertarian party. What do you say about that? Does it matter more or less in the very red states? Thanks, Erica. Is this Erica from Nebraska? This is Erica from Nebraska. Oh, yeah. Erica from Nebraska. I got your answer right here. Uh, <laughs> it is. You are lucky because you are in Nebraska and you live in one of two states that is very special in how we elect our presidents, where every other state in the union is a winner take all state when it comes to the Electoral College. So if Hillary Clinton wins Pennsylvania, she gets all the Electoral College votes. But... Nebraska and Maine do it by congressional district. So if you a congressional district votes for your candidate, they can win uh, a proportional number of electoral votes. So this doesn't happen very often, but it has happened. Barack Obama did it in 2008, and he managed to score one electoral vote out of Nebraska. So yes, it does matter. And vote for who you want to vote for. As always, always vote for who you want to vote As for. As always, vote for who you want to vote for. <laughs> I've got to say, Monday on the show, we told you guys that there were no debates or primaries this week. That was not totally true. Uh, a listener named Aiden wrote us to point out that the Libertarian Party 
held its debate this week, and it was taped for air on the Fox Business Network tomorrow night. So, Aiden, thank you for keeping us honest. One more quick break. We'll be right back with Can't Let It Go. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the Great Courses Plus video learning service, providing unlimited access to a wide variety of videos on topics like history, science, literature, and personal development. You can watch the Great Courses Plus on your TV, tablet, laptop, or phone. At thegreatcoursesplus.com politics, they're giving listeners an opportunity to watch The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, as well as hundreds of other courses free. To access this offer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash politics. Okay, it's time for Can't Let It Go. When we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, it can be about politics or whatever. Sue, what do you got? Okay, so my Can't Let It Go this week involves John Kasich, which I think is my first Can't Let It Go that has ever been a Kasich Can't Let It Go. So this is an inaugural moment for me on the podcast. But <laughs> my Can't Let It Go is this week John Kasich was at a campaign event in New York, and he committed a political food faux pas in that he got a New York slice and then in front of the cameras proceeded to eat it with a knife and fork. For shame. Which I would say, as a person, I do not find this practice offensive. But... I am not running for president. And I think that this is kind of well known about New York politics. Mayor de Blasio got in trouble for doing it. Uh, Donald Trump got criticized for doing it by Jon Stewart in that in New York, you got to fold it, you got to bite it. Now, I should say that after Kasich knifed and forked it, he then also <laughs> flip flopped, as someone referred to it, and picked it up and ate it with his hands. Um, but I, I've always been kind of amused by these political food faux pas. They seem to happen every election season. Um, if you remember when John Kerry was running in 04 in my hometown of Philly, he got a cheesesteak and he ordered it with Swiss cheese, <laughs> which got him roundly ridiculed in the Philly press. Kasich was ridiculed today in the New York press. See, we're just uh, it's like we're somebody just saying, should warn them. One of but also, aides, here's the so, thing. Uh, like, yes, I agree with food. Usma. This is what good staff is for. Right. But to be fair, New York pizza slices are really, really big sometimes. Right? Yeah, like that's why you gotta fold it and bite slices. it. slices. Yeah, you know. I mean, I do kind of put the pizza fork thing in the same category as like people who don't get all of the chicken meat off a chicken bone. Like, <laughs> oh, and in just my like mind, leave it there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that would me, that would cost your vote. Yeah, like there are two people in this world, two types <laughs> of folks: people who get all the meat off the bone and awful people. Fair. No you question. Don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't want them really kind of working that chicken bone, though, with the, with the <laughs> well, pool this, camera. And that's the other thing. Like, if you are running for office, just don't eat in front of cameras. Like, you oh, never you have to look good. To show that you're a nice person. Take very small bites. Uh, Don, what do you got? Uh, my, my click is about Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Uh, Scott Walker, the Republican governor, been uh, elected and reelected and survived a recall. And this week, the week of the Wisconsin primary, was supposed to be his big coronation. Maybe I need to remind you guys that he ran for president of the United States. Say <laughs> he, what? I remember that. He ran for the 2016 Republican nomination, but he didn't make it out of 2015. And that was after coming out of the box at 
full sprint and rising to the top of the polls and even riding his Harley Davidson, you know, to a big uh, summer picnic hosted by new U.S. Senator Joni Ernst in Iowa. Uh, He was supposed to do well in Iowa, uh, get on a roll, and then nail it down in Wisconsin. And here we are. Not only is he no longer in the race, he endorsed Ted Cruz this week, which, which got some news. But talking to people, uh, vote, you know, voters were like, yeah, I don't know if it makes any difference or not. Uh, it's kind of old news. Uh, we kind of saw that coming. So the fact that uh, he's such an afterthought in this state that was supposed to be such a big deal for him this week is the thing I can't let go. I bet yeah. Scott Walker can't let it go this week either. Oh, oh exactly. Exactly. Osmond, you good? Yeah, I'll give mine. It's not the best, but it's all right. But you're the best. <laughs> well, it's something that I can't let go. Kind of go. So I, I spend time, right, looking at polls and exit polls and data and whatnot. And so um, just today, Pew came out with some new uh, data that kind of explains where we are as a country in terms of, you know, how Republican voters and Democratic voters think about the state of state of the country. And so one of the questions they asked voters is that how you feel your life in the U.S., has been uh, today compared to where it was 50 years ago for people like you. And Trump supporters said about 75% of them say that their life in the U.S. is worse than it was 50 years ago for people like them, right? I mean, that's a huge number of people who think the country's worse off than where it was. I think the thing that's kind of weird to me is that on the flip side, among Clinton supporters, you have a majority of people who say that the country feels like it's better off than where it was 50 years ago. And I guess that's nothing new, this election cycle. It's kind of the story of this election, that there are people who feel like the country's best days are ahead of us, and then there are people who feel that they sort of want to go back in time. Well, and you know, Asma, we talked about this offline before. Um, For a lot of the groups that usually skew Democrat, they have seen their rights and freedoms expanded in the last 50 years. Women and minorities and gays and lesbians, like they've seen the things that they're able to do in this country expand. Yeah. We've seen a lot, too. I remember during um, the immigration fight, and one of the things you would hear among Hispanic and Latino voters is that that view of, is the American dream still exist for you? And they have really high rates of saying they still believe in it. But it's what you're saying, Sam. Like, where your status in this country was 50 years ago, if you're Hispanic or black or a woman, you know, you are doing better today. And if, if Trump's base is working class white men for the core of his voter, you know, working class white men have suffered a lot of setbacks in this country. So their anger makes sense and their fear makes sense. Speaking of working white men, I can't let it go was about Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Manhattan uh, Thursday morning at the union offices of the 1199 SEIU union to give a stump speech for Hillary Clinton. And I noticed a few things about it. One, he does not seem as fresh and as engaging as you expect Bill Clinton to be. Uh, There were moments during his speech, which was about half an hour with no notes, where you could see the crowd kind of losing focus. Um, They still loved him, you know, and they still all wanted their photos taken with him afterwards. But it wasn't the same engaging Clinton you saw in, I don't know, like the DNC conventions of the past two cycles. But... What stood I mean, out the most? almost 70, right? Yeah, that's true. that's true. 69, I believe. Yeah. Okay. But mm. what stood out the most to me is that at several points during his speech, he did this thing that, like, your uncle or your grandpa does where they're like, 
I read this thing on the internet, and I actually <laughs> saved every time he did it, and I think we're going to play it right now. Today, in the New York Times, I urge you to read this. Today, I woke up to an article written by the former editor of the New York Times at this little website, which is a gold mine called PolitiFact, where they check whether what you say is true or not. And yesterday, there was an article uh, on the internet. You can look it up on Vox, which says, there was an article on the internet. It was so endearing. <laughs> and that was what I couldn't let go. All right, that's it for this episode. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. That helps other people find us. And thank you for doing that if you already have. Also, find us on Twitter. Send us your questions there or by email. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. Thank you for writing us. We do read everything, literally everything even if we can't answer every question on the show. I am Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And happy to be back in the great Midwest. I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 